Welcome to Cheek by Gels podcast, not true, but useful. This is episode 10, Talia Telly. Hi, I'm your host, Lucy Dawkins, and over this season of the podcast, I've been interviewing Declan Donlan and Nick Ormerod, the artistic directors of the theatre company Cheek by Jowl. In these interviews, they've been sharing their philosophy on life and the theatre, drawn from 40 years of collaboration which has taken them all over the world. They call this philosophy not true, but useful, a set of ideas which are helpful in the tricky business of making a play, but which are also constantly developing and changing as they discover new depths in their work. This is the last episode in this season, in which I'm going to be sharing some bonus material from the last episodes, which Declan calls Tagliatelle, after the Italian meal which, legend has it, was originally made from pasta offcuts. Here's the Tagliatelle from our recording in the last few weeks, with some delicious thoughts which didn't quite make it into other episodes and which we're serving up to you now. Our first piece of Tagliatelle comes from a conversation in which Declan said that good theatre implicates us and makes us examine our own standpoint. I asked him what had first given him this idea, and surprisingly found out that it wasn't at the theatre, but at an art gallery, looking at the works of the Italian painter Caravaggio. Well, Caravaggio is very interesting because he's brilliant, but people will say, oh, he's brilliant because you know, he's so realistic. Look, the toenails are dirty and cracked and that they look like real people. And, and then also, of course, then you talk about the chiaroscuro and, you know, the, the, where's the light source? And then think, why am I in this room? Where am I standing in this room? Or some angel is plummeting down. You think, well, where am I in this? It's not necessarily a bad thing. You just become aware of your own position in the universe. And I think that's the extraordinary thing that he does. You're there with them and you wonder what you're doing there. So that after a while you stop being interested in the intricacies of what's happening in the painting and you're looking at yourself as being an actor in the painting it's not so much what am i doing here like i have no right to be here but it's more like thinking from what position am i watching this what is my part in all of this any good work of art looks back on you and seems to be measuring where you are and that's when art's really good it works really well it's it's invasive in this next piece of Tagliatelle, Declan talks about the danger of trying to understand too much when we're approaching a play, in a conversation we were having about Shakespeare's play, Macbeth. If we understand the story, if we struggle to understand the story, we can probably succeed in killing it for us, you know. We, we, always, we often struggle to make the myth safe by explaining it. Now, we need to try to understand things as well as we can, if I get anywhere in my understanding, I will almost certainly find a mystery much bigger than the one that I went in with. And that's what happens to physicists, great physicists, that they have had to learn an enormous amount of humility in the last 110 years. And they're kind of exemplary about this, of understanding that they're not going to understand, understanding there may be some things that we will never understand. And I, But I think that's important just to get to a much lower level than quantum mechanics. I just talk about rehearsal. It's, it's good... You know, we have to go in and try and understand the Macbeths. But if I say I have understood Macbeth, then I'm, I've, I've really screwed up. We have to try and understand ourselves, but we should probably know that we never will. Ultimate defeat is inevitable. I find it quite useful for myself, and I find it quite useful when I'm doing a play, that we need to try to understand, but understand that ultimately it's going to be impossible to understand. Or put it practically, if, if any directors are listening to this, I always think my job is to make everything as clear as I can, understanding that if the play is any good, it will have a central mystery, 
and that central mystery will be inexplicable, but it will be important. And that's at the heart of, um, I think, all art. I think, I mean, I think the function of art is to, in a funny sort of way, make us feel all right with the fact that certain things are not understandable, but not let us off the hook of trying to understand them. Mystery isn't something particularly esoteric. Um, it's just part of our everyday life. You know, why, why do we destroy ourselves? Why do we out of our way to make ourselves unhappy? All of these things are very often mysterious. Yes, we should try to understand them. And I'm not saying ever that we should give up our effort to understand. I think we should be trying to understand as much as we possibly can understand. But we also need to know that the moment we think, oh, I have understood, I've understood perfectly, then we're probably going wrong. And accepting that there is always going to be some mystery strikes me as being quite a sensible thing to do. And I think somehow that's all right, because I think when we love somebody, in a way, they haunt us, because we don't love people because we understand them. We love people because we have some fantastic capacity to accept them. And part of the thing that we have to accept in other people is their mystery, like love between the Macbeths. And I would say that, in a way, she doesn't really love him because he's her project. And you can't love somebody that you want to change. That the, the greater part of love is acceptance. We can't explain everything away. However, I think we should all be very careful about adding mystery unnecessarily to things. It's a, it's a very bad idea. It's, it's very unfair, actually, because we're all trying to sort out the superabundance of mystery that we have. And to actually pretend something is mysterious that isn't is, is a pretty awful thing to do. However, pretending there is no mystery, because I'm so clever I can explain away all mystery, that's, a, that's another extremity. So we have to use our common sense where to come in the middle of that. And when we make works of art, we draw each other's attention to things that we find mysterious. And if we're not careful, you see, things that are mysterious will make us feel lonely. But I think in a work of art, we're drawn together in a group and we have a kind of collected awe at, at things that otherwise might make us feel lonely. And we, have a, we, we recognize a common shared humanity in it. In this next snippet, Declan talks about leaving room for the unknown and the dangers of trying to explain everything in a piece of theatre or a piece of art. Because explaining everything means you can explain the mystery away. There are many ways you can harm an artist, but one way is to absolutely criticise and rubbish the artist's work. That's pretty good. better way than that is to totally ignore the artist's work. It's more passive-aggressive and it's more silent and more deadly, but that's a even better way. But the best way of all is to force the artist to explaining the work. That's the really um, nasty one. So you get them to explain it and then the work will be completely dead. And then, and, and then you give marks to those artists who can explain their work better. That's really fatal. So it's very dangerous talking about your work like that. A favourite film director of mine is, is, is Bresson, um, and he was famously never gave interviews. There was one very funny uh, interview question, I think, to Louis Mal, and they said, why do you think, why, 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 oh, why, oh, why um, is Bresson so funny about giving interviews? Um, he says, what are you talking about? None of us would give interviews if we had the opportunity. Bresson doesn't give interviews because he's the only one who can get out of them. Um, but there's a, there's a rather sad sort of extra in one of those 
CDs of his work, and it's two Dutch film students from the 60s or 70s with long hair and, and fair jeans who are trying to find the, the guru, and they, they try and track him down all over Europe. And they track him down to a hotel in, in Cannes where he's at the film festival. The door creaks open, and there you see Bresson like a sort of magnificent old lion that hasn't got much longer to go with huge eyes vulnerably by the desk um, in the room and these two young guys come in and they Monsieur Brisson there's a question we have to ask you and he says yes and he, he said, we have to know the answer to this question what does your work mean and they said that and I don't know I felt so sad I can't even remember what he said, because, of course, there can't be an answer to that question. Can you imagine going to Shakespeare and saying, what does your work mean? I mean, the, the idea is grotesque. I mean, imagine saying to a parent, though, what does your child mean? I mean, the question is is, is bizarre. It's, it's, there, I don't think my child has meaning like that. Ah, so you're saying your child is meaningless. No, I'm not saying that either. It just doesn't exist in that binary of meaning and meaningless. In another one of our conversations, Declan returned to this problem of understanding too much. I asked how you could find a balance between understanding too much and understanding too little when approaching a play. One of the terrible lies of, of the modern world is that you can't have too much information. You can easily have too much information um, because if you have enough information, you become stupefied. I don't think you become actually stupid. I think stupid is a word we should use very, very, very rarely. We should apply for a license to use the word. Stupefied, though, means when we are flustered um, because we, we can't see something. Information is like light. If you have, you're making a movie and somebody wants like somebody's face, first of all, they're in complete darkness, you can't see anything at all. And then slowly you can bring on a little bit of light and slowly, slowly, slowly you'll see that you can see a bit of a nose and a bit of a chin, a bit more light, a bit of a cheekbone, something of the hair, a little bit more light, you'll be able to see the eyes, you'll see a glint in the eyes. At a certain moment you'll think, oh yes, I see this light very, very well. So far, so good. And so Dark is bad, light is good. Dark I can't see, light I can see. And in fact, most many religions in their sacred texts use the fact that God is light and light is good. Um, uh, and dark is bad and dark is the devil. Um, they often use that kind of binary, that dualism. And that's great. So can you have too much light? And the answer would be no, 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 no. Can you have too much information? No, 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 no. But actually, the thing is that if you go on pumping light onto that face you'll see that it tends to flatten and that it starts to mix with the background and that the nose loses its shape with enough light and then the outline of the head loses shape with enough light and with enough light the whole screen becomes completely bleached and that bleach out to white is a modern cinema shorthand for death normally a good death of somebody you don't want to die but it becomes shorthand for death so with too much light you can't see properly either so the question is how much light and then the answer is there ain't no principle you have to judge it for yourself because what's enough light for one person won't be for another and you need to you need to use your kind of responsibility to judge how much light is enough not too little not too much and that's very important with information and that's and it's also important in terms of understanding so you know sometimes we can understand things as a defense against experiencing them occasionally and we need to be alert for that so we're putting on a play 
we need to understand as much as we can, but understand that maybe the most important things in the play are going to be things that we're not going to understand, things that are going to be invisible. Now, there was a strain in philosophy that said that, you know, if you can't talk about it, if you can't um, understand it, there's no point in thinking about it. But I think art comes to the rescue there and says, no, no, very clearly, it's very often the things for which we have no words that are the most important things. Throughout our interviews, Declan had a lot of not true but useful advice for actors and directors for when you get stuck in rehearsals. Here are his thoughts for how to use the space to bring a scene to life. If the scene's not going well, say, if if you feel it's a little bit dead or the actors feel it's a bit dead, it's very often because the space in their imaginations will not be enough embodied. Leah brilliantly says about uh, Edgar, he says, you know, thou art the thing itself. Like there's no word to describe the thing itself. He understands suddenly that he's been talking about humans as if they're theories. And very often we don't realise how much we have a tendency to theorise our lives. So moving from Leah to the Macbeths, um, it's easy to understand that there's an owl there. It's easy to understand that Duncan's in the next room. Um, it's easy to understand that he is up in the bedroom. But actually to inhabit that, for that to actually exist, as Edgar does for Lear, for it, those things to exist as a carnal reality is extremely difficult. It's effortless in real life. On the whole, things are there. We do inhabit a real world. That's very difficult for the actor to actually really imagine that Duncan exists in the next room. Everybody can understand it. But, you know, in a way, we've got to go through the wall of understanding into the world of experience. Understandings are kind of rung on a ladder, and it's a pretty low rung, actually. In our way, the artist's job is to see that in real life, we often use understanding as a defense against experience, and that we have to use art to reconnect us to experience, which we've kind of sometimes understood ourselves away from. But but we live in a world where understanding is a universal panacea. And we have to be very careful having universal panaceas because the problem with all medicines is that they can be poisonous if taken um, without common sense. And understanding is one of those things that we can understand to a degree that it becomes toxic because it actually takes us away from a world of experience. And to understand, no, no, it's a real owl, it's real blood, it's a real old man. There's, it's really cold outside. That is the task of the actor. And it's really, really hard to believe in an embodied world. And secondly, an embodied world that is bigger than they are, that they're out of control of this embodied world. And they set a chain of events going. They get bigger and bigger and bigger. They're, they're struggling to control it, contain it, steer it. But it's going wildly out of control. But the important thing is that they, they imagine it but they give blood to the thing that they imagine. They they imagine it in an incarnated, full of blood way. And that's not very easy because all of the language that we use to talk about this is misleading us. Another piece of not true but useful advice that Declan shared was to avoid psychoanalyzing a character too much in rehearsals. We came across this problem when talking about the dagger scene in Shakespeare's Macbeth, when Macbeth hallucinates a bloody dagger hovering in the air on his way to murder the King of Scotland. What sometimes happens is that the actor will say that I think the the character's paranoid, I think Macbeth's having a paranoid attack, to which is my job to say, never mind about the paranoid attack, tell me what the dagger looks like. If Macbeth were to go to a psychoanalyst 
And he would say maybe to the psychoanalyst, I have this terrible problem, I keep on seeing a dagger. And then the analyst would probably think he was suffering from paranoid delusions and then try to sort out over a very long period, um, or very short period in the case of Macbeth, why he's suffering from these delusions. But this is a very good example of how our job is the exact opposite of um, uh, analysis at that level. What we need to give to the audience is the carnal concrete immediate in front of our eyes image, event, experience of this guy seeing this dagger, which to him is absolutely real, and what that dagger is that he sees. And the actor must see that dagger at that moment. And that's one of the mysteries of acting. But it's actually, it's it's not for us to interpret that. So we can see on ancient Greek vases that sometimes that the actor is, um, studies the mask and then sometimes plays through the mask. But between them comes a moment the process I think is absolutely crucial and I think we need to meditate upon it every day which is spinning the mask so yes we should not judge the character we have to we have to see through the character's eyes because judging the character will make us stupid we won't see things but when we're studying the mask we have to be completely aware that Macbeth does the most monstrous things. He, he murders Duncan, and then he goes on to murder Lady Macduff and her children, and he wages war. He does unspeakable, disgusting things. And we need to see that and, and measure up to that when we're studying the mask. But then the mask must be spun, and the actor then sees through the eyes of that mask. And that judgment then has to be forgotten. But I would say that part of the mystery of theatre is that the memory of that will remain. But the actor must have such confidence in the mask that the actor is, is letting the mask do it. In other words, the actor can rely on the fact that those things that the actor has learned about the character will remain. But the actor cannot be playing a moral judgment on Macbeth. I mean, he will be seeing somebody who feels that Macduff's children are attacking him and Banquo's children are attacking him and that um, they're all against him. That's what he has to see. But yes, in, in his moment of study, he can see why that might arise and should indeed, I think, see that that might arise. But then the mask must be spun and it goes through 180 degrees and you see it and then you see through the eyes of it. And they're totally different modes and they must never be allowed to mix. So if they do mix, you're in real trouble. In this next strand of Tagliatelle, Declan is talking about how to deal with verse. Cheek by Jal is famous for staging explosive productions of great classic plays, including Shakespeare, Middleton and Racine, who all wrote in complicated verse forms. I asked him how he helped actors make high verse sound so convincingly like contemporary speech. There's nothing particularly high or highbrow about verse. Let's just think calmly about verse. Verse is to do with intonation, so I naturally will stress some syllables rather than others. We use verse all the time. So you could say, for example, oh, that actress is absolutely fantastic. Or you could say, that actress is absolutely fantastic. And you separate out the syllables. All of the information in that is basically to do with verse. It's to do with how and when the meter falls. Now, in blank verse, which the English and, and, and the Russians share, interestingly, um, it's very often built on um, an I am, titum, titum. And what happens in the verse is that the audience acquires and the actor acquires an expectation of a rhythm which may or may not be satisfied. So it's a bit like jazz. 
jazz is absolutely dependent on square time, on the four time, because it's the breaking that expectation that gives the energy to the music. So you have a form that you can break. And verse works exactly like that. Verse has the expected titum, 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 titum. And then the, the, the writer, the speaker, um, they, 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 they um, play on that theme. They vary the theme. They, they, they go into counterpoint. They go against that theme. But it's the rhythm that sets up an expectation. And it's the difference between the expectation, what actually is delivered. That's what gives you your strength. All I'm trying to say is don't be frightened of verse. It's actually what we do naturally. And it's also to do with something that's quite subtle, but I think it's extremely important, which is the syllable count. So after the actors have sorted out what their text means, or at least a superficial understanding of what the words might mean, um, then it's important, I think, that they do another exercise, a weird exercise, which is to divide it into syllables and make sure they count each syllable. And they don't need to remember the number, but they do need to separate the syllables, and then they need to say the syllables as if they had a separate existence, because that helps them to get into the sound of the word, and the sound of the word can do amazing things for the actors. You don't have to try anything, you don't have to understand anything, you just let the sound occur to you, incredible things will happen. But you do need to notice a little bit the amount of syllables that you're using. The syllable count is very, very important because sometimes there are bits of text that the actors don't quite want to say all those syllables and they don't have enough of an impulse to get through all those syllables. But if you don't have enough of an impulse to get through all those syllables, you can't actually say it. So counting the syllables is very uh, focusing for the actor's mind. One thing I'd like to draw your attention to, though, is that when politicians on TV, it's quite fun watching them. Well, it's not fun watching them, actually, but if you have to watch them, you can switch off and do a syllable count. So very often a politician wants to hide something to explain just how well they're doing and why we're world-beating. And they'll, they'll be giving you information. Now, sometimes they'll bamboozle you by losing, using long words. That doesn't work so well anymore because it's too obvious. Sometimes they bamboozle you by giving a lot of out-of-context statistics, three million pieces of PP, and the numbers don't mean anything to you. But the best way is to use too many syllables to get across too little information. And the thing is, we have um, an attention thing. And if you use up too many syllables, then you will lose interest. And getting you to lose interest is a very important political tool. So how does the verse help you think about the scene as a director? We could talk a little about Jean Racine, who used the Alexandrian verse form which is a strict form of, of two lines of 12 to 13 syllables, and there's a, an AA rhyme at the end of it. So Orestes at the beginning of Andromaque says, um, Oui, puisque je retrouve un ami si fidèle, ma fortune va prendre une face nouvelle. Et déjà son... And it goes on. Um, so there's a fidèle nouvelle, there's a rhyme. Um, that you can get away with that in French. It's fine to do that in French because French offers more um, rhymes than um, certainly than English does. So when you when you rhyme in English, like Otway writes great plays with rhymes, but rhymes tend to sound a little can sound a little bit Christmas cardy, and very often Shakespeare uses them to indicate insincerity or sometimes a, a scene ending. But the, the rhyming in English is very different from rhyming in French. It's much more easy to rhyme in French. Now. The problem is this, is that the, the form, it sounds so clever and it sounds so contained and it sounds like we really know what we're doing. It sounds like we're really grown up and we're not kids um, dressed as adults. But actually, the glory of Racine is 
that he's writing about caged beasts. The, these people are in the midst of the most terrible chaos, personal chaos, terrible self-destruction and uh, manipulation and self-pity and self-obsession. And they have terrible, terrible problems. And they do it all in this polite form. And what's wonderful about it is the constipated nature of the rhyme makes you realize more Jesus, they're mad. This is this is absolutely mad. What are they talking about? So you get this enabling tension between the wall that's keeping the energy in and the energy that's bursting to get out. So it's they're extraordinary Racine, I think, because he articulates so well a, a primal scream, because a primal scream is held in this incredibly tight form. The, the danger in the Alexandrian is that the um, actor might think that the Alexandrian is describing a past feeling or a past thing. Um, it's the um, job of the actor always to boot the text into the present tense. And if the pe text ever sounds perfect, it can sometimes take on the quality of that like reportage, like I'm telling you about what I felt. So if I say I love you, it's got to be about what's happening now as opposed to a description of something that I cooked in the oven five minutes earlier. It's not a, a, a description of something that's already taken place. The rhyme in the Alexandrian is quite tricky because it can make things look like they were pre-cooked and you, that has to work double hard to make sure that everything's being forged in the furnace of the imagination at the now, at the big old now. That's all our Tagliatelli wrapped up for today, which also concludes the first season of Cheek by Gel's podcast, Not True, But Useful. Thanks to all of you who are listening in and to everyone who's sent in questions for us over the last few weeks. We hope you've enjoyed the podcast. And if you want to find out more about Cheek by Gel's work, you can find social media links in the podcast notes below. You can also find Cheek by Gel's archives there, which have images, clips, scripts, drawings and notes from past productions. I've been your host, Lucy Dawkins, and the music you're listening to was composed by Pavela Kimkin. <laughs>